Welcome to Saltier Politics. We've got another best of for you this week, this time with reporter Sangmin Kim of the Washington Post. It's another great conversation with one of the best reporters in the game. We hope you enjoy it and we look forward to getting back on track with you guys next week. Enjoy. We're here with Sungmin Kim, a Washington Post reporter covering the Trump administration with a lens on Capitol Hill and also a newly minted CNN political analyst. So, Min, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you and hear you. Hey, thanks for having me. How do you feel that journalism has changed? Because you've had quite a long career and worked at a lot of great places, but how do you feel now when you just really state the facts and kind of fact check the president or the administration that you're sometimes looked at as biased when in fact you're just saying a fact? How has it changed for you and kind of what are your tactics as you go in? I think what I say is that, I mean, clearly we have a president that has taken a very adversarial view with the press. And you can see that proceeding in a courtroom this week when CNN has sued the administration, sued the White House to uh, to return uh, Jim Acosta's credentials back. And virtually every major news outlet here has backed him up on that, including the Washington Post. Um, in terms of backing up CNN on making sure that he can get his credentials back, because we strongly believe that this is a major uh, threat on the First Amendment and violates, um, you know, CNN's First Amendment rights. With that said, I think what it what if if anything that I've changed, it's making sure. Uh, well, first, making sure even more than I already did that everything that we report, whether it's the smallest fact or um, a major scoop that we have to make sure is bulletproof, that we go even further than we, and than we have ever done before to make sure that our reporting is as bulletproof as, as it is possible. Because I think previously, um, before this, before kind of the rise of the, you know, the fake news criticisms began, um, I just, um, obviously you would get criticized if you got something wrong, but for whatever reason, and I, and I honestly like do get this from both, um, you know, both sides that people think that people think that if you get something wrong, like you, there's much less um, a benefit of the doubt to reporters that it was an honest mistake, that it was that it, that's actually you got this wrong, fact wrong because of an agenda. And I can say that when we get things wrong, it's just like clearly an error either our sources were wrong or we didn't vet it fully enough like i think i speak for virtually all journalists say we don't have an agenda when we you know make when we report wrong facts they're just wrong that we they're just wrong facts that we got at the time you know it's interesting it's interesting you say that Sungman, because you and i and i'm just remembering this as you're as you're talking about this you and i were on a panel i want to say seven eight years ago i can't remember how long ago it was it was up at yale it was the women's campaign school up at yale and i had you on um on this panel as uh, i think you were at politico at the time but as a reporter who really was not working for a partisan news outlet um and you never have and uh we had i remember somebody asked a person who was listening to this panel asked the question of, do you think the press is biased? And both you and I and the other um, journalist on the panel said there are some biased media outlets, but a lot of the quote-unquote mainstream media, whether it's the Politico where you were at the time or the New York Times or the Washington Post, really has reporters who just try to really write it as they see it down the middle and, and doesn't have a don't have a bias. We were basically laughed out of there by saying that yeah. by by people on both sides of the aisle. This was not by any means limited to to 
any one particular political viewpoint. And I think at the time, I was certainly surprised at that reaction. Today, I wouldn't be as surprised at that reaction. I think most people believe that the media is incredibly biased, either pro or con. I think that's fair. And look, you know, kind of amending my observations from, you know, seven or eight or nine years ago, there's been surveys, um, anonymous surveys of journalists. And if they relay their, um, you know, when they get asked their political preferences, and if you look at these surveys, and I haven't participated in any one of them, but they do look journalists lean liberal. And I think it's fair to point out that observation. But I also do think that most professional journalists are able to put their personal beliefs aside um, to report out um, all sides of a controversy, particularly on controversial issues. And I get asked this question pretty regularly. And I, I say a couple of things. Well, first of all, the only thing I wanted to be as a reporter uh, or only thing I wanted to be in life was a reporter. And that was since I was 12 years old. So I've just never, like, whatever cause I want to push it to the extent like on like any sort of issue, I feel so much more. And people ask me like, well, what do you think about this tax cut? Or what do you think about this immigration speech? Or like, what did you think of Brett Kavanaugh? You must have personal feelings on all this. Oh, like, sure. But I like, for me personally, what is the most important beyond like Washington doing something or not doing something is making sure that I can get out the most fair, the most accurate and the and the most prompt information about an issue or a controversy out there for the readers. Like I feel this is so cheesy, but I feel really passionate about that. And that supersedes any personal feelings or agenda that I may have. Well, um, and, and I'll say this, I've known you for a really long time. We're good friends. I was at your wedding. You were at my baby shower. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, we've known each other a super long time back when you were an intern in Somerset County, New Jersey for the Star Ledger. I mean, this uh, is like good, time. good time, <laughs> great times. As I recall, you particularly had great times, but, um, and I've never, as close as we are, I actually don't think I've ever heard you voice a political opinion, even in private, which um, is rare. But I think people should know that. So when you go into interviews, uh, you may personally like somebody, but what has been a difficult story you've had to break or report on that a person that kind of puts a person in a not so flattering light? How do you tread on that line? That's a good question. Um, I think the generally, um, I mean, it's hard to think of examples right now, but I think what I've tried to do, um, and my sources can say whether I've been bad at this or good at this, is always to be straightforward. So if I'm writing, for example, a profile on someone, but it's going to be critical because the person has been in the news for maybe like a not so great reason, or if there's criticism being floated about him or her, um, I will be very straightforward with um, how the story, you know, the reporting that we've gotten and how the story is being shaped um, at this moment. Um, there's this kind of, it, it's kind of a gruesome philosophy, but you just, as a reporter, you always want to stab people from the front and not from the back. <laughs> so just to be as upfront as you can with the kind of story um, that that you want to present that you think is fair. Um, if it's tough on a person, you just really want to, you just really want to say, well, this is what we have. This is what we have from like three people who have told us this. I think we you know, please, before we publish, like, let us know your side. Otherwise the story is not, you know, not well-rounded, but I think just to be, I just, I've always remembered just to be as upfront and straightforward. Cause I think even, even, and Julie can uh, weigh in on with her view of things, but I think that, that um, people on the other side feel 
that is much more helpful than just surprising. I mean, I've heard from a lot of sources over the years that the thing that they hate the most from, especially from stories, is a, is, is a surprise. Um, they would much obviously rather know about it beforehand, and they're much, even if the story is tough, they're much more appreciative reporters who have let them know in advance this is what the story is going to be rather than just, you know, you know, dumping a surprise on them when the story is published. Yeah, there's, there's nothing worse for um, a, a Senate <laughs> staffer, and I can, t- I can vouch for this, having been one a long time ago, than to walk into your principal's office, into the senator's office, and say, I had no idea the story was coming, and whoops, it's really awful, and how do we clean this up, rather than knowing a few days in advance that it's coming. So I agree. Um, let's do t- uh, Two Truths and a Lie because you have some good ones. Um, So this is a game we play every week on the podcast, and it actually helps people really get to know our guests much better. So why don't you give us, in no no particular order, um, three things about you, and we will guess the one that is false. So my three things is that, well, first of all, okay, so I'll I'll list them off. It is um, that my the second language I ever learned was Japanese. Um, keep in mind that I'm Korean, so that helps a little bit. Um, uh, my favorite travel, travel memory is going backpacking around Europe in college, uh, and I've played the national anthem at an MLB game. So which one is the lie? I think I, I, think I know the answer to this because I know you really well, so I'm going to let Emily go first. You, Japanese was your second language. I'm going to say that you never went backpacking around Europe in college. So Julie is correct. I knew I it. I knew it. Backpacking. <laughs> I've been to, I think the first time I was in Europe was uh, when I was in high school for an orchestra tour because I'm a total dork, <laughs> um, but I never did the backpacking thing. I would love to. Sounds fun. Um, but yeah, so what I, I played, I was part of a youth orchestra that played the national anthem at a White Sox game. You are um, a dork. When I was, That's cool. <laughs> I am the total dork <laughs> when I was in ninth grade. And yes, I grew up in, I spent uh, four years of my younger years in Tokyo. So that was, Japanese was the second language I learned. That's actually really cool. Do you still speak Japanese? I don't know this. I don't. I think it's just kind of disappeared because it's hard for a young kid to probably have three languages in their head. So I think I had to push Japanese out at some point. My mom tells me that if I've ever spent an extended time in Tokyo or elsewhere in Japan, it may come back out. It's just hiding in my brain somewhere. But for now, it's hiding. You know what? You also, if you were here in New York, which is so much cooler than D.C., but you and I have had that debate for many years now, um, (laughs) we would be serving you your favorite alcohol, which turns out to be the Love Beer from Star Hill Brewery. What What the hell is that? So Star Hill Brewery is a brewery out in Charlottesville, Virginia, about three hours south of um, D.C. It's where University of Virginia is. And it's just a very, very delicious beer. And I think I kind of want one right now. What's delicious about it? Really? It's it's like a wheat beer, but it's like a little bit different. I like wheat beers. And it's just just like there's just something really good about it. And I think think also the first time I drank it, I was on a great um, road trip with my – well, then – boyfriend now husband so we just always have really great memories of that trip to charlottesville so i think that's also why i like the beer as well tell us about the weird knuckle i never knew about the knuckle so i also in addition to playing violin i played volleyball in junior high and high school um and which would surprise others because i am not that tall i'm about five five clearly i was not a front row spiker blocker um, but i did play defense in the back row and I played, uh, I played on a club team in so- sophomore year of high school. So and there was, you know, there was one day at practice, there was a ball that was dropping maybe about 10, 15 feet in front of me. I, like, dove um, to try to, like, save it. I should have, what I should have done is 
just to put my uh, put my right hand in a fist to try to bump it back up. But I didn't. I had my hands open, which means my pinky snapped back. I broke it. My mom, who always hated me playing violin or playing volleyball, but loved me playing the violin, was furious because I couldn't play the violin for six weeks. <laughs> but it didn't grow back all too correctly, so it looks like now my knuckle is missing. I've never noticed that. That's pretty gross. Yeah, so. I'll show you the next time. It's pretty freaky. That is freaky. Maybe you could tweet it out after people listen to this so we could all we could all take a look at it and let us know i know right well so you played violin for a while my my mom put me in piano for a decade and said you know there will be that one time you're going to be at a party and can play piano and you'll just be the bell of the ball the same thing has that ever happened to you i was going to ask you has that ever happened to you because i i was at a camp weekend and there were four people there but i don't think that is considered a party how about did that happen with you (laughs) Uh, so that's the reason my mom wanted me to play both uh, piano and violin, because she was always telling me there's going to be that one moment, whether it's at church or at a party, where they're going to need a pianist, and you can, you know, you know, go in with your piano skills. I quit after six months, because when you're a young kid, it's hard to play two instruments, so I continue the violin. Um, but I don't, I mean, as much as I loved it growing up, I don't play violin too much anymore, um, but I am always obviously have all the happy memories um, uh, playing, you know, making my mom happy what do you what's the presidential field shaping up to look like what do you think well it looks like everybody from the senate democratic caucus is thinking about running um i do find it funny that once these uh, senators got successfully through their 2018 re-election campaigns literally the day after you have other folks of people saying they are openly entertaining running for president the latest in the batch is senator bob casey who was just re-elected in pennsylvania um, for a six-year term but he uh last week but he did tell a local station um where he told nbc that he is he hasn't ruled it out he's considering it so in the Senate alone, you are going to have at least a dozen people or so um, who are actively considering running. Um, and that doesn't even include the governors, the mayors, other um, Democratic Party officials who may be considering yet. So if you thought the 17-member field and the Republican Party and with the undercard debate was kind of a disaster, I would just, you know, brace yourself for the next couple of years in the Democratic Party. How do you like dealing with candidates who say they're not running for president and they tell you that to your face but then they know then you know you have a gut instinct and you hear it from everyone that they are do you look at them and are just like really or do oh, you just... I never take it seriously you can't take it seriously because very like I, you know I'm sure there are some senators or several senators who do really have no higher or grander aspiration than being in the senate and that's awesome like for example Mitch McConnell has his top political goal has always been to be the Senate majority leader and that he has achieved it. And I know a lot of senators who are obviously content on being in the Senate, but a lot of senators do wake up and look at themselves in the mirror and see a potential president. So if you hear names floated and they deny it or they have, they go pretty, you know, Sherman-esque and rule it out, like, just don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. I think Kirsten Gillibrand is a great example. When before the, before she, um, she was reelected uh, last Tuesday, she was saying, I will serve out my six-year term. And then literally, like, one or two days after, she's saying, like, I'm, you know, taking the presidency, uh, taking a hard look at the presidency. Um, and, and I don't, and I don't get that from her perspective, Sungmin, because I live in New York. I don't think anybody would have not voted for her if she just said, yeah, I'm not sure if I could serve exactly. that. Like, she, she, I don't even know the guy running against her or the woman running against her for Senate. I mean, that race was so sleepy that it couldn't be more sleepy. 
Yeah, and it's also she was never she was never going to lose, um, especially if she had said that. And I think Elizabeth Warren has been a little bit more upfront about her intentions. But that's why you know we can't again like we can't take it seriously. I actually remember um, we and my. I remember coverage of, you know, President or then Senator Obama in like 04 and 05 reading like the front pages of the Chicago Tribune saying he would not, you know, like by no means or I didn't know this was after he was in the Senate. So it was like in 06 and 07 that, you know, he's he's not thinking about this yet. Like he is not running for the president. And then look at, you know, like he ran, he won, he served two terms. So you just like as a political reporter, you just never, ever, ever believe um, <laughs> these senators or other officials when they say they're not thinking about um, running, running for president because they almost certainly are. Do you have a special ringtone for when Trump tweets or someone is fired? Because I feel like you have to be on alert at all times because you're following him. So the most unfortunate part about joining the Washington Post Amazing White House team is that finally I had to turn on the Twitter notifications on my phone for Donald Trump. And that buzzes a lot. 4 a.m. buzzing. It, I'm sure I'm sure your husband loves yeah, that, right? 4 a.m. Exactly. when he starts tweeting. At 6 a.m. I mean, my husband is like, what is happening? I was like, he's tweeting again. <laughs> uh, luckily, we have a wonderful morning uh, news crew that can catch a lot of these tweets um, in, the, in the early a.m. But it is amazing to see how just the entire Washington is just dictated by what comes out of his Twitter account. Look, reporters are by no means the only people who have Donald Trump's, you know, notifications set on their phones. I know senators have, so they can be up to date on whatever they get, whatever they may get asked about, you know, Trump's latest tweet from us in the hallways. Um, And it's really changed, you know, like, I don't know how you, I, I don't know what it's going to be like after Trump once, when he eventually leaves office, of how his his successor is going to communicate. He's really changed everything on that front, um, and we're just so used to being tied to this next buzz or whatever might sound my... That, that is actually, i, I got to tell you, as, as yeah. again, as a former Senate staffer, that is just amazing that a co-equal branch of government has... <laughs> that members of a co-equal branch of government literally have to worry about somebody tweeting something out because they have to either take direction or comment on it or worry about it. It's just uh, exactly. a, a very different time in our lives. Um, Indeed. <laughs> uh, Sungman Kim, Washington Post reporter, CNN political analyst. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. And next time we fun. see you in real life, I can't promise you love beer from Charlottesville because I'm not sure if they can import that into New York, but I will buy you whatever disgusting beer <laughs> is sold at some divey <laughs> bar in New York. I promise. All right. right. Thank you so much. Thanks. 